Hey guys, you're listening to episode 61 of the Finish Line podcast, where we discuss the intersection of faith, generosity, and personal finance. Today, we're talking to Jim Wise, a financial advisor with Ronald Blue Trust. Hey there, welcome to the show. My name is Keelan and I'm here with my co-host and brother Cody. Today we're talking to Jim Wise, a financial advisor with Ronald Blue Trust with 39 years of experience in the finance industry. Jim not only has an incredible personal story, but a deep passion for seeing the Great Commission completed and a heart for seeing others step into exciting, spirit-filled generosity. Stay tuned to hear all he had to share. Before we get started, you know this podcast has grown almost exclusively by word of mouth. For those of you who have helped us get this message out there by sending a link to a friend or sharing on social media, we just want to say thanks. It really makes an impact. If you think this or any of our other conversations are thought-provoking or inspiring, take a second to share it with someone who might need to hear it. We have been blown away at how God has used some of these conversations to make a radical impact in the world of generosity and missions, and you very well might be a link in that chain. All right, with that, let's get to the interview. Here we are with Jim Wise from Ronald Blue Trust. Jim, we first heard your name back on episode 56 with Mark and Sharon Taylor and just hearing about how you played such a pivotal role in their story. And we're so happy to have you here to tell us a little bit of your story today. Uh, Thanks, guys. I appreciate the opportunity to serve. So why don't you kick us off just telling us a little bit about your spiritual journey? How did you come to faith and how did that impact how you think about money and wealth? I didn't grow up in a Christian home, so faith was never part of my life. And it's funny, as far back as I can remember, all I can ever remember thinking about was that I wanted to be rich when I was a little kid and starting to grow up. All I ever thought about is I wanted to do some kind of work that would allow me to make a lot of money, which is a little embarrassing and humiliating to acknowledge, but that's where I was. So early in my career, I had started out in retail management before shifting into financial services. And if I had to kind of come up with just a couple of words that characterized who I was or what my life looked like before, I would say I was driven to succeed. Being successful to me meant you made a lot of money. You could basically buy whatever you wanted, do whatever you wanted. So I was incredibly driven toward money. And I started my career in retail management and was doing very well, very quickly. But the second time one of my stores got held up at gunpoint, my wife decided that I needed a career change. And I had spent some time studying finance and really loved it, was fascinated by it. So I made the transition into the financial services industry. What happened is once I changed careers, my income tripled in the first year, and then it just started going crazy after that. So I loved the industry because I was starting to make a lot of money. And what was interesting is I never actually owned anything. I never had anything because my motivation was constantly increasing lifestyle. That was how I would stay motivated to keep trying to build my business. Mm-hmm. So I mean, every several years, new house, new cars, new furniture, new everything. It was a little bit scary in the sense that I had been persuaded that having a lot of money and possessions was the key to life, peace and joy and contentment in life. And the more I acquired, 
it was the opposite of that. There was never any peace or joy or contentment in it. Any of our listeners who have ever spent the season of their life just kind of obsessed with money and possessions know what it feels like. I mean, you could have your heart set on something no matter how badly you want it, no matter how hard you work to get it. By the time you get it, it doesn't matter anymore. And you're desperately searching for the next thing to need to kind of keep you motivated. So I got into a pretty bad cycle. I just started to ask myself, what am I doing this for? And what is my life all about? Because as my income went up, I was able to borrow money from banks to get basically live a lifestyle that even exceeded my income. So I not only had to make a lot of money to pay all the bills, I had an increasing amount of debt that I was dragging around because I always had to have newer stuff and bigger stuff. So I remember it became an issue for my wife, Lori. She was pretty concerned about it because it just nothing was ever enough. And I never experienced anything resembling contentment. So I convinced her that if I could just build my dream house, we would just move one more time and that would be it. And I would be happy and we could stop kind of chasing stuff. So she reluctantly gave in and we built this big as 30 over 3000 square foot. Just a beautiful colonial on four acre wooded lot with a built in swimming pool. And I was just sure that that was going to be it. And I would finally be happy. And we moved in one weekend. The next Saturday morning, when Lori came to call me for breakfast, she found me sitting on the stairs. We had this big two story open kind of foyer with a curved staircase and a big window over the front door. And I was just sitting on the steps, staring out the window, apparently with a troubled look on my face. She could see something was wrong. So she walked up the stairs and sat down next to me and she said, what's wrong? What are you thinking about? And I remember trying to muster some genuine excitement as I told her, we're going to move again and we're going to get an even bigger house and we're going to have an even bigger lot. I mean, this was the second weekend in my dream home and I was absolutely panicked because it didn't do it. It didn't feel any better. The only difference was I had a much bigger mortgage than I had had before. So I was trying to keep myself motivated. And I could see that Lori started to get very quiet. And she kind of let me talk. And when she wasn't buying into the bigger house, bigger lot, let's keep going. I went into lecture mode about, you know, this is why we set goals. We got to keep setting goals. That's why we have all this stuff and why we're so happy. And she started to tear up, understandably. And Finally, Lori looked at me with the saddest eyes and she said, Jim, when can we be done? She said, you don't have to do this for me. Me and the kids were happy when we lived in the apartment with bugs in. None of this stuff matters to us. And I remember, I mean, I felt like I'd been in a fight with a heavyweight fighter who just gave me an uppercut to the midsection because I had been able to kind of hide behind that. Well, I'm doing this to provide for my wife and my children. And reality is in that moment, I had to acknowledge this had nothing to do with Lori or the kids. It was all about me. It was my ego. It was my pride. It was my insatiable appetite for material things that had brought us to this place. And rather than providing any sense of security for my family, because everything we owned was mortgage leveraged. I mean, I had a ton of debt and I now I need it. I had to make a lot of money just to pay the bills and pay the debts. So that was the first time in my life I remember feeling like I was completely lost. And whoever had told me that this was the way that you were going to find success and peace and joy and contentment, like I felt like somebody had lied to me along the way. And what was funny is right after that, 
neighbor across the street, him and his wife were both Christians, and they had been praying for me and Laurie from the day we moved in. And he came over and he invited me to a Bible study with a bunch of business guys. And I can tell you honestly, if he had asked me six months earlier, I would have laughed at him because I thought, you know, Christianity's a crutch who needs religion. But it was just crazy, the timing of it, because I knew now that I didn't know what the word lost even meant. I had no context for kind of biblical language, but that's exactly what it felt like. It felt like I was lost and I knew it. And I didn't know if I would find any answers in a Bible study, but I was willing to go. And by God's grace, I went to this Bible study with a bunch of really godly men, very different from any of the guys I knew in the industry that I was working in, for sure. Just marveled at how much these guys loved their wives and loved their families. They were all successful, but they had an entirely different view of success and money than I did. And at that study... I heard the gospel clearly presented for what felt like the first time in my life. So I left the Bible study and I call it a traffic light conversion because I didn't say anything to any of the guys while I was in the room with them. But I understood for the first time who Jesus Christ was, why he came. So I waited. I got out of there as fast as I could. And I was sitting at a traffic light in my car, tears streaming down my face and just begged Jesus to forgive my sins and come into my life and take over this mess that I had made. Wow, that is a really powerful story. It's pretty incredible how God's timing is always perfect. And I just really appreciate you sharing all of that. And I think money is such a strong competitor with God for our hearts that sometimes it takes an experience like that to create room and openness for the gospel, for God to work in us powerfully as he has in your life. I'd love to hear what happened after the traffic light conversion, what started to happen in other aspects of your life. Well, the first thing, it happened to be Easter week, and you were talking about God's perfect timing. Lori and I have been best friends. We've been together since we were 20 years old, and we are, we've been inseparable, still are, to this day, obviously. It was unthinkable. It still is unthinkable to us that one of us would have come to faith in Christ and one of us had not, because we've always done everything together. And what was interesting is right around the same time that the neighbor was inviting me to a businessman's Bible study, someone else invited Lori to a Bible study that was taking place in our neighborhood, a women's Bible study. So we both in separate situations, we both heard the gospel the same week. We both repented and came to faith in Jesus Christ individually within two days of each other. And it's Easter week. It's Wednesday night of Easter week. And we're laying in bed in the dark trying to figure out how to tell the other person <laughs> what had just happened. Because again, <laughs> neither one of us grew up in a Christian home, so we didn't know like the church language. We didn't know how to describe what had happened. So I started and I was, you know, you know, telling Laura, you know, the businessman's Bible study, like heard something and I just went on and started to explain to her who Jesus was and that I had repented of my sin and trusted in him. And she just started laughing out loud because we're laying in bed in the dark. And she goes on to tell me that she had done the exact same thing earlier that day because her Bible study was Wednesday. Mine had been on Monday. So we both came to faith in Christ at the same time, which is just when you think about God's intimate knowledge of us and his intimate 
love and grace and mercy. Like for me and Laurie, it just, we could not have, it would have been so sad for either of us if one of us had come to faith and the other of us had had to spend some season of continuing to wander out there on our own. So anyway, we decided to go to church for the first time on Friday night. There was a good Friday service at a church that was pretty close by. And I remember turned out there were people in that church too that had been praying for us, that had been praying for our salvation. Some of them had never even met us, but there were some other Christians that lived in the neighborhood that we had run into. So it's like there was this whole barrage of people that were praying for me and Laurie, and we show up at church that we had never been in before, and people were coming up and saying, oh, you're Jim and Laurie. We've been praying for you guys. (laughs) It was crazy. But anyway, somebody grabbed me and said, well, now that you're a Christian, Jim, you need to have a daily quiet time. And... We had three kids at the time. The house was fairly noisy. And I'm like, I don't even know what a quiet time is. So he said, well, you got to get a Bible and it's best to get a study Bible. And he actually helped me pick one out. And he said, you just get up earlier every day. You need to spend time in God's word. For me, discipline always came fairly easily. And I was really hungry because particularly now I'm a financial advisor. I had been an unsafe financial advisor who idolized money. Now, all of a sudden I was converted. I couldn't wait to start reading the Bible because I wanted to know if the Bible actually addressed any of this stuff that I was so messed up about. So I literally for six months is a brand new Christian. I was up early every morning studying God's word. But what I did is instead of like starting and reading through the Gospel of John or starting in Genesis and just trying to do a read through, I went to the concordance and I made a list of every word I could think of that had anything to do with money. So like money, wealth, possessions, debt, savings, idolatry, bondage. I spent six months studying nothing but a biblical perspective on finance. So it's like I had only been saved for six months. And I, at that point, I probably knew more about biblical stewardship than a lot of folks that had been Christians their whole life, because that mm-hmm. was the only thing I was studying. So that was how God started the transformation in my life and heart with regard to money, stewardship, generosity, and all that, because I studied nothing but that for the first six months that I was a new Christian. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. You know, I think many people are not aware of just how much there is. And when I was laughing to myself when you were saying that you started just looking up every verse or passage that had to do with money, because I was thinking that probably gets you a decent way through the Bible, (laughs) just with how much it talks about it, how much Jesus's ministry directly addressed money. So that's, I mean, what a powerful story and how quickly God kind of interwove you know, what was such a big part of your life and your new faith. So just another testament to his timing and presence in all of that. So how did that begin to change, you know, what your personal life looked like and even more so how that affected your career as a financial advisor? It was interesting how God started to work in and through me in my personal life and management of our own finances. And then how that made it much easier in terms of my career transition, because everything I was going to start teaching people now was something that God not only taught me, but actually did through my own life. 
So there were so many in the next two years as a new Christian, there were so many times that God directly intervened in our life, our family with regard to financial things. And I, I mean, I thought that was just normal, but there were so many extraordinary stories where as God would start to mold my thinking, for example, in the area of biblical stewardship, generosity, debt, then he would weigh in and do something that seemed extraordinary, borderline, miraculous. So there were two things in particular that I'll share with you just regarding giving, because obviously the Finish Line Pledge and the Finish Line Podcast, that's probably most of us who really appreciate what you guys are doing. It's for that reason. It's kind of the generosity movement. So I remember for me, when I started studying what the Bible had to say about money, I came across giving and I came across specifically tithing pretty quickly. And I had never heard the word tithing before, but it I kept seeing it. And then as I was reading it, it seemed like that was pretty important to God, it seemed you know like something he was calling his people to do. And that my impression was that that's where the giving journey begins, not where it ends. So I remember I sat down with a pastor friend of mine and said, can you explain this tithing thing to me? Because I've never heard the word before. I think I have a sense of uh, what it means biblically. But he said, basically, tithing is just 10 percent. And he said a lot of Christians embrace that everything we have belongs to God and whatever God entrusts to us, at least the first 10 percent is what we give back to him to continue his work in the church and getting the gospel around the world. So. I remember trying to talk myself out of it because I couldn't imagine being able to do it. Now, remember, I had constructed this lifestyle that needed a lot of money just to pay the bills. We had no savings. We had no anything. Every dollar that came in went out the door to finance this lifestyle. And then after I came to faith in Christ, my practice started to change because I was in 100% commission business at the time. So I started every month at zero and I had this huge nut that I had cracked every single month just to be able to pay the bills. So I started to change the way I practiced because there were a lot of things in my practice, like I had clients that were trading penny stocks and options, things that were very lucrative for the brokerage firm. But folks were never making money. They were always losing money. And part of my early conviction professionally was I can't do this anymore. So it's like I changed the way I was practicing to get rid of the risky, what I was coming to view as poor stewardship stuff on behalf of my clients. Then my income started to go down and I already had all this tremendous financial pressure. Then I ran into this. God wants his people to get the first 10% of everything they make. I couldn't make it work in my head. And I remember then I started studying tithing just to disprove it. I honestly was looking at it every day, just trying to find the loophole or the way around feeling convicted about it. And I just got to the point where it's like, man, this seems like one of the most basic teachings in all of scripture. So that my first kind of crisis of faith, if you will, was around generosity and around the concept of giving back to God and giving the first 10% of what we made. I was a financial advisor. I mean, I budgeted, I did the envelope system and I couldn't make it work. There was no way to make it work because we didn't have any additional money to give away. But I was so strongly convicted that this is what God called me to do, that 
Laurie and I made a decision together. We said, okay, starting next month with the first paycheck we get next month, we're going to start tithing. And kind of as a side story, not to belabor this one, but we owned a rental property, which a rental property is what you own when you live in a nice house and decide you want a bigger house and you can't sell the one you have. <laughs> so you turn it into a rental property because you want to be in the new one. That's what kind of rental property I had. And we were renting it to relatives at way below market value. So we were basically breaking even on my income and our expenses, and we were losing $500 a month on the rental property. So when I was wrestling with God over the tithing issue, I remember saying, well, Lord, if you would just sell, because the rental property we had had on the market for a year, and we're getting like no bites, nobody was even looking at it. Because I remember trying to convince God that if you would just like sell the rental property, and we'd have back that $500 a month we're losing, that would be a, you know, a nice start toward our tithing. So anyway, Lori and I made a commitment. We said, no matter what, first paycheck next month, we are going to start tithing. And it felt absolutely wonderful. And then a couple of days after we made that decision, I get a call from the realtor. And the realtor says, guess what? We got a contract on your house. And it was like almost for full price. So it would be wonderful if that was the end of the story. Because I'm thinking, oh, this is incredible, and we were faithful, and then look how God blessed us. So the house is under contract. Next month comes, first paycheck comes on Friday. I do my bills on Saturday, and I'm going to write the first tithe check. I was flying with excitement. Realtor calls on Friday, literally on payday. Realtor calls and says, I feel bad telling you this, but the deal fell through. They couldn't get financing. The buyer couldn't get financing, and so they were able to, basically, the contract is in jeopardy. They could walk away from it. And I remember I was so shaken because I thought, you know, we did what we were supposed to do. And then I thought God, you know, did his part. And But now, all of a sudden, we still had the negative cash flow, but we had committed to the Lord that we were going to start tithing anyway. So it's funny. If you didn't live through this, it probably doesn't seem that intense or like that big of a deal. But I mean, Saturday morning, I got up to pay the bills. And the first one I was going to write was supposed to be the tithe check. And it's like my hand is shaking. I couldn't do it because I thought, you know, surely God's not going to hold me to that commitment. The deal fell through. He knows we're losing money every month. And I was really I was just shaking because every part of me wanted to start tithing because I believe that's what the Bible called me to. And the financial advisor side of my brain saying, what are you talking about? You, you can't give money away when you're losing money every month. So bottom line is went for a long drive, me and Lori, and just kept talking about it, prayed together about it. And on that drive, I felt for us as new Christians, we didn't understand the kind of hearing from God or God laying something on your heart was not audible by any means, but I felt like God was reminding me that the reason we made the commitment to tithe was not because we knew how we were going to do it. We made the commitment to tithe simply because we believed that that was obedient to God's word. We thought his word spoke clearly, and because it spoke clearly and we were followers of Jesus, we were going to do it. So we decided on that drive that it doesn't matter what happens with a rental property. God will continue providing for us, but it's God's money, and we want to start giving generously. So I said, as soon as I get home, the first thing I'm going to do is go into my office and write the tithe check. So we get home and I'm headed into my office to write the tithe check. And one of my daughters comes in and says, oh, dad, by the way, we got a phone call from the realtor. She needs you to call her back. So now I'm thinking, whoa, what if 
so I have to decide now, do I call the realtor back first or do I write the tithe check first? And I said, there is nothing that's going to stop me from writing this tithe check because I don't want to talk myself out of it. So I wrote the tithe check. And honestly, I just started praising God for the gift of his word, for the gift of obedience, for the way he had provided for us, for the ability, the desire, intense desire to start being generous and start giving back. So I wrote the tithe check, felt completely free and liberated, then called the realtor back. And as you might imagine, deals back on the buyer. One of their relatives decided to step in and give them a financial gift that would allow them to make up the gap. And they got the mortgage. And 30 days later, the rental property was gone. But anyway, that my introduction to biblical obedience to God's word, that was kind of that journey. But it was one of those things that at that point, it was so imprinted on my heart. It was something I could never forget or change. Jim, I think it's so interesting being a financial advisor. You know, we work with risk-based assets all the time. And we are constantly trying to reframe what risk really means for clients and what does it mean to be in the market. And it's such a conversation around this is the way to build wealth over a long term. That's what the textbooks would teach you. But your handshaking as you are thinking about writing that tithe check, that is a spiritual, it felt like a spiritual risk, I'm sure, of what's going to happen. Is God going to bless this? And what if we can't pay the bills? What do we do then? It's such a powerful reframing of risk. And I had a similar moment that Keelan helped talk me through a number of years ago when I was faced with this decision, am I going to start tithing now or am I just going to continue to put this off? And the conviction was so strong that I had to I had to check the box and say, I'm going to start tithing. Nothing's going to stop me from taking that first step because I don't want to miss out on what comes next any longer. And I imagine that's what happened in your life as well. So tell us what happened when you wrote that first tithe check. What started to happen in your heart in the way that you and Lori started to behave with money and in your career as well? It's funny. Something happened shortly after that because of the tithing experience, because it's like now we're believers. The fact that after we wrote the check that God came back and sold just like that, sold the rental property. And I had realized that I felt like what God had wanted to teach me was that if I could figure out beforehand how it would work, I didn't need to have faith to do it. I just, you know, do it because I knew where the money's coming from. It was almost like I needed to get to that crisis point where I don't know how this is going to work, but I believe that it's a matter of obedience and we took it. So all of a sudden now we're like, oh my goodness, this stuff is true. Like all this stuff, I got six months worth of notes and journaling and all this financial stuff. And you don't know. I mean, for, again, a brand new Christian. We didn't grow up in a Christian home. You don't know for sure. And then something like that happens and you start to say, oh, wow, I wonder if the debt stuff and like debt creating bondage, because it sure feels like that to me. So we made a decision right after we started tithing. We said, you know what? I've been in bondage to credit cards since I was probably, man, I don't even remember, 18, 19, however old I was. I couldn't even believe somebody gave me a credit card. And it was so much fun. I got another one, another one, another one, another one. And I had tons of credit cards. So every time we had a negative cash flow, there's a sense in which it didn't matter. I just get another credit card. And when that one was filled up, I get another credit card and that one's filled up. Well, all of a sudden, I mean, we had 
at least eight or nine credit cards, some with very large limits. And they were all pretty close to maxed out. And all I keep thinking is that is bondage, that is bondage, that is bondage. And I knew that I knew because I had been living with that. So I studied some Ron Blue stuff and some Larry Burkett stuff. And I'm like, I am addicted to credit cards. I am wholly dependent on credit cards. I'm not dependent on God for provision. I'm dependent on, you know, Mr. Visa, Mr. Bank of America. So Florian and I sat down. It was so funny. We were like children. We were so nervous and afraid and excited and giddy. We said, we're cutting them all up. We're going to keep one credit card in case like we need to book airfare or do something like that. And I had concluded the safest one to keep was the lowest limit and one that that didn't have any real credit limit left on it. It was already maxed out, but it was the smallest one. So we literally, it was like we were having a party in my office in the house. We laid them all out with the scissors and we just started cutting them, cutting them, cutting them. (laughs) And I didn't really think about it. It just felt really liberating. But remember, I had changed the way I was practicing, so my income was dropping. We were breaking even. We had no savings, and we started tithing. And now, all of a sudden, my backstop, which had always been credit cards, was sitting in the trash can in, like, thousands of little pieces. And after we got done, we kind of looked at each other and were like, I sure hope that was the right thing to do. And a couple of weeks later, Lori called me at work. I'll never forget the call because she was weeping so hard. I couldn't understand the words that were coming out of her mouth. And when I could finally figure out what she was saying, we didn't have any food. We didn't have any milk. We had three kids at home. But because our income had been declining, we were living on a shoestring. We were never able to like stockpile food. I mean, it was as we went and it was Tuesday and payday was Friday. And she was crying so hard because the pantry was like empty, had paper products, but we did not have food. And she knew that we didn't get paid until the end of the week. And I got to tell you, as husband, father, provider, that was the first and only time in my life that I was unable to provide for my family and had absolutely no idea, no idea what to do. So I said, I don't know. Let's all we can do is pray. I don't know what else we would do. And We prayed that afternoon. So this is Tuesday in the morning. That afternoon, I hesitate to tell stories like this because they're so hard to believe. That afternoon, Lori calls me at work again, weeping so hard I could not make out the words. And when I could finally make out the words, she explained to me that the doorbell had rang. She opened the door. Three ladies were standing at it. Two of them she recognized from church, one she had never seen before. Two cars in the driveway, and they felt almost uncomfortable because they drive up to this, you know, 3,000 plus square foot home with a built in pool on a beautiful wooded lot. And they said, We have two trunks full of food for your family. And she could tell looking at them, they thought God sent them to the wrong place. Because it looked like we had everything. Now she's weeping for joy because nobody except for me and Lori knew that we were in financial trouble. Nobody had any idea except me and Lori and God. And we didn't understand how that part worked. 
So same day she called me crying because we were out of food. There are two trunks full. And basically these ladies came in, helped her unload. And they said, we have a ministry that once a month we go shopping together and we pray for God to give us wisdom and guidance on what to get food, clothing. And then we pray about what family is in need. This was their ministry. Nobody even knew about it. And they said when they gathered that morning, God had laid on their heart that the Wise family was the family that was in need. So they just started buying stuff and then they brought it all over. And what was so crazy, too, is like, you know how like little kids all have their favorite snacks and their favorite foods. It's like their favorite foods were in the trunks of these cars. So I get home and the pantry is completely full, like completely full. Like it was never completely full when I was providing for the family. But when God started providing, it took less than like four hours to meet. When stuff like that happens to you, like you're changed forever. You're changed forever. It's like you don't ever wonder if what God says is true because you just experience. I mean, I don't know how... It's just miraculous. I don't know what else to call it. It's not like we got the prayer chain going and told everybody the wisest don't have any food in the house. It's like I am way too private a person, way too prideful to ever like make that known. It's just so giving and that there was such a strong level of conviction about God is my provider, credit cards or not, generosity is commanded. And frankly, that first type check we wrote was the funnest amount of money I had ever sent out the door. It was so much better than getting a new toy or new stuff or any of that stuff that didn't satisfy the thrill world quickly. So it was very easy to start integrating biblical truth into my financial advice because God was doing surgery rapidly inside of me, but I could speak with conviction that God's word was true and that we just need to practice these principles because he had demonstrated I mean, those two events happened very, very close together. I didn't understand until later that that kind of stuff doesn't necessarily happen to everybody. But I was really glad because we were 32 years old when we came to faith in Christ. So it was really helpful. Having grown up with no background of any of this stuff, it was really helpful to have those experiences early on. Yeah, what a whole series of incredible stories. And, you know, the thought that was coming to mind for me as I was just hearing you share story after story of watching God work is the idea of faith as a mustard seed. And because especially when we talk about generosity, I think that it's really easy to have this idea of like, I need to really ramp up my faith and like be really spiritually secure and sound. And then I will make some, you know, act of generosity. And that will be an outflowing of all that I've grown and everything. But I think it actually is the other way around, which is so clear through your story, because God asks us to just take action. And it's like stepping off the edge of a cliff that's just all fog, you know, and him saying, you know, I'm not even going to tell you what's under that next step. That could be a 100 feet down, or it could be, you know, a soft blanket. But he just asks us to take that step. And it's the act of doing that over and over and just seeing him 100% come through often in ways that we didn't even expect him to, just like I think just about every story that you just shared. And through that, our faith is so deeply strengthened because, you know, like, I don't know how you experience what you experienced there and ever go back. You know, there's, that's just 
you can't go back from that once you've seen God work like that. Yeah, you know, it's interesting too, Keelan. My view of financial freedom, if you will, from the time I was little, always revolved around having lots of money. That all caused me to realize like financial freedom will never be a function of how much money somebody has. In fact, if anybody doubts that, you know, just go back to the COVID market meltdown, market goes down 50%. The people that had a lot of money invested were much more freaked out than the people that didn't have a lot of money invested. Same with the global meltdown in 0809. It's like the people that had the wealth were the ones that were panicked the most because you know, you lose 50% of a large amount of money. So that is not financial freedom. Financial freedom will always and only be a function of how much money we're able to give away. Because you have to be truly free to give money away. You have to be truly secure in the fact that God is going to provide. He's going to continue to provide to be able to take money and give it away instead of continuing to build our own barns or continue to stockpiling in case, just in case God doesn't come through when I have the need. But you're absolutely right when you've had, I mean, at least for me and Lori, our lives were changed rapidly and biblical stewardship was not just something we read in the book. And it wasn't even just the Bible study. It was now a part of who we are. And it really, I mean, at that time, my commitment was made that for the rest of my life, I'm going to, I have to share biblical truth about money. Because if my view was so whacked out, and my view was the typical American view, right? Get as much money as you can, you know, kind of go for easy street, live the lifestyle you want. And I just kept thinking, I'm a financial advisor. People are paying me for advice. And I was perpetuating the world's broken view about money. So I, that's why I'm glad I was a financial advisor at the time, because at least I had a platform to start you know, integrating biblical truth into my financial counsel. I actually was in a position to help people learn kind of the same stuff God was teaching me because that was what people came to me for. Jim, that's so interesting because I've had a very similar ongoing experience where as you continue to trust God more, especially in the way that you treat and think about money, it changes the way that you think about what is actually best for people. And that is as an advisor of any type, you want to help people and by helping them get closer to what you believe is best for them. So as you continue to learn more of what that looks like in a personal sense, it has to have an effect on how you might give advice. And I think that is a really cool opportunity because you're in a position of influence with other people who, like you said, in the past, you may have unintentionally, with the best of intentions, been leading them right into the same place where God rescued you from. So how did you actually figure out how to change the way that you delivered advice? It happens in two stages, Cody. And as a financial advisor, you'll appreciate the conflict I first ran into with my employer because I remember a prospect that was referred to me came and sat down with me and had a decent amount of money that they wanted to invest. And by the time the meeting was over, I had talked them out of investing it with me and actually paying off their debt. So my boss didn't love the fact that I had failed to close that particular prospect. And then shortly after that, I don't even remember how they found me, but the Christian radio station in the town that I was working 
had heard about kind of the my story and the conversion experience, and I was a financial advisor who now had expertise in biblical stewardship. So they invited me onto the radio to do an interview, and that was a huge problem with my compliance department. It was funny they made us submit almost like a script. They wanted to know exactly what we were going to talk about before I went on, and then they changed every part of it. And made clear to me, you cannot mention Jesus Christ. You cannot mention the Bible. You cannot mention church, anything about your faith or Christianity. And I thought, man, this is going to be harder than I thought to actually integrate my faith into my practice. So when I sent back the marked up script to the general manager at the radio station who was going to do the interview, he just said, Jim, I like they took out all of our questions. I said, now, here's what we'll do. Don't tell anybody who I work for. Just introduced me as a friend of yours who is an expert in financial advice and stewardship. And that way, it's not a compliance issue because I am not going to go on the radio and not tell people what God's word has to say about money. That makes no sense <laughs> to me at all. But anyway, that was what led me to realize I needed to get out of the secular side of the industry because I have a lot of committed Christian friends in the secular financial services industry that belong there. My conviction was so strongly about being very overt in the fact that God's word is truth. God's word has all the information we need to know about financial management and especially the aspect of helping people to be generous because I knew that that was the only path to financial freedom. It wasn't through accumulation. So that's what led to the journey of me shifting, leaving the secular part of the profession, finding Ron Blue and changing careers to start to work for Ron Blue, where we do basically everything we do is based on biblical counsel. When I made the decision to leave the industry, that was another one of those, no audible voice, but I felt so overwhelmingly certain that God was telling me to leave. And I remember, this will sound stupid, but again, remember I was, I was still a fairly new Christian and I was sitting at my desk in my house on a Saturday morning after my quiet time, and I couldn't shake the burden that I needed to walk away. I needed to leave. And I cry like once every 17 years or so. It's just very unusual for me. But I was sitting at my desk at home, and I was crying, and I couldn't shake the burden. So I surrendered to the Lord. I said, okay, I know you want me to go. Nobody is going to pay me what they're paying me. And I don't know how to do anything else. I've been in financial services. So I just, what I said to the Lord is, your word says that I am to provide for the needs of my family. I know you want me to leave, so I'm leaving. I will walk out the door as soon as you show me where I'm supposed to go so that I can continue providing for my family. But I am leaving this industry. And within three months, I go into a Christian bookstore and saw a book by a guy named Ron Blue called Master Your Money. And I consumed it. And that had laid out in a tangible and practical way. Here are the biblical principles, all of which I had already studied in God's word. And here's how you apply them to real life. And in the course of the book, it became clear that he actually had a company. Like he did this for a living. And I'm reading the book and I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. You can actually work and provide for your family, giving biblical financial. It, it didn't seem like you should be able to do that. Like seemed like you should have to go be a missionary or something or raise your own support if you wanted to do that for a living. So I read the book and I set it aside. And then right after I finished the book, I was in church on Sunday 
somebody comes walking up to me. I didn't even know them. And they said, hey, you're a financial advisor, right? And I said, yeah. And they said, have you ever heard of Ron Blue? And I said, yeah, that's so funny. I just finished reading his book. And they said, yeah, it just seems like, I don't know, somebody from Ron Blue was up here and did a seminar and you're a financial advisor. I just, I don't know. I was just wondering. And then they walked away. Like they didn't even have anything to say. They just walked up to ask me <laughs> if I knew Ron Blue. And then I met a men's retreat right after that. And my mentor, who they had been praying for me and Lori because he knew I was in this career, something's got to change situation. And he never weighed in or commented. They just had been praying, but he had been a longtime client of Ron Blue. And they had just made a decision to open an office in the Northeast, which is where we live. So he sat me down for lunch and said, we've been praying and praying for you guys. I think you're supposed to be there. So you might want to get in touch with them. So I felt bad for this poor receptionist because I was so excited at that point that not only did Ron Blue exist, had a firm, but they were opening an office like 90 minutes from where I lived. So I called the receptionist first thing Monday morning at the Ron Blue headquarters and said, this probably will sound weird, but God's calling me to come to work for you. So I just need to know what I'm supposed to do. And she just started laughing because apparently they got these calls almost every day from people all over the country <laughs> saying, God's telling me I'm supposed to come to work there. So it took me about a year to get through the screening process. But at the end of that year, I got hired and that was about 30 years ago, but basically started for my vocation giving biblical financial planning and estate planning and generosity counsel. Yeah, that's fantastic. So I know Ronald Blue Trust is pretty unique among advisory firms for all the reasons that you mentioned. Maybe you can just give us a kind of a short picture of what it looks like now to introduce concepts like generosity or kind of a biblical view of wealth with a client that you're meeting with? Yes, there's a sense in which it's probably easier for followers of Christ who work here to get to have that discussion in the sense that our clients come to us expecting to have that discussion and sometimes specifically come to us so that we can help them figure out how to be more generous. But from the difference here, so everything we do is from a biblical perspective. That's the only type of counsel we know how to give or would be willing to give. And when Ron started the firm, one thing that was a really high priority was objectivity. So he decided that we would be a fee-only financial services firm, that we would never sell a product, we would never charge a commission for anything, so that our clients would know that not only is the advice they're getting firmly rooted in God's word and God's truth, but that when if we recommended that they needed, for example, more life insurance or if they needed long term care insurance or if they needed some kind of a product or to get their wills updated, they knew that that's what they needed because we didn't get paid. We didn't sell any of that stuff. We would work with their insurance agent to get them what they needed. But we're able to be completely objective because we don't sell anything and obviously do the holistic counsel. We're able to do the financial and estate planning. So Ron used to always say there are no independent financial decisions. That's why it's such a blessing to be giving holistic counsel because every decision somebody makes in one place financially affects some other aspect of their finances. So, but in the area of generosity in particular, there are two tools that I've used over the years 
that I found to be very helpful and that a lot of Christians who want to increase in generosity have found to be helpful as well. So one is on the giving. When Christians start to get the generosity bug, it, which almost always happens when somebody starts either tithing for the first time or they start increasing generosity, again, they start to experience a level of freedom with finances they've never really had before. Then they get really excited and they want to do more. But the first question that often comes up for folks who go from giving at one level to giving at a higher level is, what do I do with the additional giving? Where should I give it to? Like, do I just double up on the missionaries I'm already supporting or the ministries that we're already giving money to? But the where to give questions seem to come up a lot. And when you think about it, like if somebody goes from, let's say, giving $20,000 a year to 80000 like a significant increase in giving, it is really difficult. It's challenging to be able to figure out what causes should I give the additional money to. So what I had done, first, I looked at some research to find out what was out there for Christians to help them with the where to give. But usually every resource I looked at started with figure out what you're passionate about, figure out what you're passionate about, and then direct your resources there. And I know that a lot of folks have been helped going through that process. But the thing I found myself struggling with is I should care not what I'm passionate about, but what God is passionate about. Like the starting point for generosity to me felt like what is on the heart of God. And then I will naturally have some areas that I feel more passionate about than others. But for me and Lori, we didn't want to miss giving part of God's money to areas that, you know, that God's word said, I want you to take care of these people. So I did a, this was another multi-month Bible study that I went through on my own just for our family, for our edification. And I just went cover to cover through the Bible looking for every people group, social cause and ministry need that are on the heart of God and that he has said repeatedly are on the heart of God and are supposed to be on the heart of his people, what we're supposed to be helping, taking care of. So basically, it was crazy. I mean, I ended up with this like 20 page Word document. I was just cutting and pasting verses as I found them. I didn't want to go into God's word with any preconceived notion about what the Bible was going to say. I just wanted to identify every verse, put them in a huge document, and then start going through and say, is there a way to categorize these so I can use it for our family and with clients? And basically, by the time I got done and then started categorizing, I think about widows and orphans as an example, or prisoners, those who are incarcerated. Like there are some themes that come up when you're doing this type of study. You know, God didn't just say once to care for the widows and the orphans. He didn't just say once how important that is to him. And if he had only said it once, that should be enough for me to say, I need to be giving money here. But it's when he says something five, six, seven, eight, nine times over and over again, when you're reading through the Bible, I ought to say, regardless of whether I am personally passionate about jail ministry or about widows and orphans. God is clearly passionate about these groups. So by the time I got finished with the study, there were basically 11 categories, what I would call 11 biblical giving categories that God said over and over again were important to him. So as Laurie and I filled out our giving model, and as I helped folks to go through it, basically that's the process. That's a tool that we'll use to help people to try to cultivate a heart for the things that are in the heart of God. And my 
counsel to folks is always like when we stand before Jesus to give an account for what we did with his money. Like for me and Laurie, when we stand before the Lord and give an account, even on our generosity, like we don't want to stand before him, give an account for something other than giving some money to all of the 11 areas that God has said repeatedly we're supposed to be caring about. So a biblical study on what is on the heart of God that we should be given to is very helpful in building a giving strategy. And then the other tool, I call it the generosity pyramid. Uh, don't love that word. But basically, stewardship and generosity involves three different areas because most Christians give as a percentage of their income. And so 80% of all of the giving that's done in the United States is done with cash but only 10% of all the wealth owned in the United States is owned in cash. The bulk of the resources are held in non-cash assets. So the giving journey, if you will, typically starts with cash giving, but as folks' net worth and resources increase, then you move to asset giving. And then third, for many committed followers of Jesus, we'll also look at legacy giving. So update their estate documents to make sure that there's God's word and some of the ministries that they've been supporting is also incorporated into their estate documents. So the giving pyramid is basically the three levels of generosity. To me, that holistic financial and generosity discipleship involves touching on all three areas. You know, Jim, I've thought a lot about the concept that someone like yourself who is leading a Christian lifestyle and advising clients. It's absolutely beautiful work that you do. But at the same time, there's a cap to how many clients you can work directly with. There's only so many days in the year and only so many hours in the week that you can actually speak into a couple's situation and guide them on finances. But you've taken it a step further, done research on your own and collaboratively and created resources, materials, and done writing to make some of these concepts or practices available for people who want to learn more about this as other people have done. And I think this is something that people could do across many different industries, but you've really taken this upon yourself to equip people beyond just the hours that you have in the day by creating these resources, which is amazing. Can you share a little bit more about some of the research that you've done and what you've learned through that process? Happy to. Yeah, it's, I had started, it probably goes back 20 years or so, but I started to realize for the very reason that you just gave, the work that we do with clients is time intensive, financial and estate planning ongoing requires a lot of time. So none of us serve a large number of clients personally. And I had started to become really burdened, again, going back probably 20 years with wanting the information to be more broadly available than what I could personally serve and even what our firm could personally serve. And it had occurred to me that there were two ways to do that. One would be develop resources and training content for other Christian financial advisors, CPAs, estate attorneys, insurance professionals, trust officers. Any Christian who does work in this space, that if we could help train them and provide resources on biblical stewardship and the practical application of it, we could have exponential kingdom impact. And then I also realized that another conduit to the Christians to whom God had entrusted wealth and increasing levels of wealth was through ministries that are serving 
their donors, ministries typically function from the generosity of the financial partners God has raised up. So also, if, uh, if I can help not only Christian financial advisors to integrate this information to their clients, to their practices, but can also help ministries that are serving generous, wealthy Christians to incorporate these principles into the work that they're doing, the discipleship that they're doing with their donors as well, that we could probably have significant kingdom in that way. So I had written a book at the pretty early on in my career with Ron Blue on basic biblical stewardship and converted it to a workshop that a lot of people then took the material and did the workshop in churches. And I had more recently done quite a bit of research. You guys and probably most of our listeners will have heard about this unprecedented transfer of wealth that's going to take place in the United States in the next 40 years or so. And as a financial advisor, I've been hearing about that for quite a long time. But now we're getting close to it actually happening. And I was reading a really good research report that was done through the Center in Philanthropy at Boston College. And it basically quantified, conservatively quantified, the amount of money that's going to transfer in the United States from one generation to the next between now and 2061. And the amount they came up with was $67 trillion. And I remember when I was looking at that money, I mean, I can't even get my head around what is $67 trillion. It just felt like it was an awful lot of money. But I remember after I finished reading the research report, I sat there and I said to myself, you know, it doesn't really matter how much wealth in the country is going to transfer in general. What matters is how much of that wealth is being stewarded by passionate followers of Jesus Christ, because non-Christians who incidentally are stewarding the large majority of that wealth, they're understandably unconcerned with using it for God's glory or using it for God's intended purposes or using it to get the gospel to every remaining unreached people group in the world. To complete the Great Commission is only high on the list of God's people. So I did some additional research to say how much of that wealth is likely in the hands of committed, passionate followers of Jesus Christ. And not the version of Christianity that's fairly popular in American culture that is more the kind of I walk the aisle once and pray to prayer or cultural Christian, social Christian. This research actually drilled down to only identifying folks that say Jesus Christ is my savior. Jesus Christ is Lord of my life. God's word is inspired and inerrant, and I'm endeavoring to live my life in faithful obedience to it. That group of the American population that are passionate followers of Jesus is about 7%. So if you take the $67 trillion that's going to pass and multiply it by the percentage of the population that are passionate, committed followers of Jesus Christ, it comes out to be about $5 trillion. So sometime between now and 2061, approximately $5 trillion of God's dollars are going to be passed somewhere by God's people and if you start comparing that number with how much it will take to complete the work of the Great Commission, it'll take, I won't bore our listeners with the detailed research here, but it'll take less than 2% of the wealth that is already in the hands of the most committed Christians in the United States. It'll take less than 2% of that 
to reach every remaining people group in the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ, with a missionary church planting presence and support them for 20 years while they're plowing that soil, and to get God's word translated into the heart language of every remaining unreached, unengaged people group that does not currently have God's word in their language. Just remembering we're called to make disciples, not just converts. So for me, when I started to realize that God had already provided way more than enough resources just in the hands of the American church, the most committed followers of Jesus, way more than is going to be needed to complete the work of the Great Commission, or at least complete the funding of the work of the Great Commission, that's when I started to get really excited about kind of passing that information on, again, to other Christian advisors, to other ministry leaders who are serving their donors and, and for our clients as well. Because when folks realize how close we are to having funded the work that we all agree that God has called us to do, oftentimes, again, generosity just ramps up exponentially because people realize we have an opportunity to reach the last remaining people groups in our generation, which is pretty exciting for most generous Christians to think about. Yeah, and I could cite countless episodes of the podcast at this point that we have heard from the people that are on the front lines doing that work from the organizations that are reaching those remaining people groups right now from the organizations that have collaborated together to complete the translation of those final languages that have not been translated yet. And when we first started hearing that, it seemed like you know, a lofty goal of a few, but what we are seeing over and over on this podcast is that God is absolutely working towards that end. And, you know, from everything that you're sharing here, the resources are there to do it as well, not just the manpower, but the resources. And it is very exciting to, you know, see the potential of that in our generation in very real time frame, and to be the church, the people that God has on the earth doing that work, you know, at one of the most intense times in the church's history. So, you know, regarding that great wealth transfer, do you have any guiding principles concerning inheritance for people as they consider how to handle any wealth that remains at the end of their life or are trying to navigate thinking through that process? Yeah, I think the overarching principle that I think we all probably should consider is to apply the same biblical stewardship principles and the same biblical stewardship wisdom to the wealth transfer process, to the estate planning process that we've all been trying so hard to apply to day-to-day -day money management. Because what I've learned over the course of the years is that most even mature, generous, wealthy Christians, estate documents in the United States typically do the same thing. And it's usually what's recommended by the attorney, which is you just divide all of the money, no matter how much it is, divide it all equally between all of your adult children. Almost every will I've ever looked at, that's what it says. Until you start talking through who's the owner, inheritance by definition is excess wealth, right? The only way that Lori and I will leave an inheritance is if when we die, we still have resources that God had entrusted to us, knowing we were never going to need them, use them, spend them, or give them away in our lifetime. That's what inheritance is. It's excess wealth. You get to the end of your life, if there's anything left, that's excess. And we, as stewards of God's wealth, have to decide what is it that God gave us that excess for. 
Because if he gave it to me and Lori, knowing we were not going to need it or use it or spend it or give it away while we were live, then presumably the owner has some desire for that particular wealth. And before we draft our estate documents, we probably ought to consult the owner to say, what do you want us to do with any excess? So inheritance is a blessing. Inheritance is a wonderful thing. But I think before estate documents are finalized, it's really helpful to say, assume that God's intention falls somewhere between what part of the kids and what part of the kingdom, or at least ask the question. I mean, it could be that we get to the end of our lives and all of our adult kids are faithfully walking with Jesus. They're good stewards. They're generous. God may well lead a Christian family to say, we are going to pass 100% of this wealth down to the kids because they're going to perpetuate the stewardship and generosity that we have been. But there are an awful lot of Christian families who, I've seen this happen a bunch of times just in my ministry that I've done outside of Ron Blue, just counseling families through some of these difficult decisions. But I've seen a lot of cases where an adult child, let's say, for example, has gone astray or adult child has struggled with addictive behavior, destructive behavior, maybe even been estranged from the kids and where the parents have cut off. The parents tried to help, tried to help, tried to help and got to the point where they were afraid to give any more money to the adult kid because they're afraid it's going to hurt them or ruin them. In other words, a decision was made that it's poor stewardship now to keep giving God's money to this child, and yet the estate documents say this child gets, you know, an equal percentage of the entire estate dropped on them at death. In other words, there's a lot of families don't, there's no continuity between the decisions being made with God's money and day-to-day financial management and how the inheritance is scheduled to be allocated at death. So my encouragement is when estate documents are done, a lot of Christians just simply never have thought about this. But we got to ask God the question, if he entrusted this excess to us, was his intention that all of it gets passed down to the kids? And depending on the size of the estate and, you know, some larger estates, kids could be left independently wealthy, right? Never have to work again because so much wealth was dropped on them. If a Christian family has a conviction that that is what God's intention was and it was prayed through and there's a strong conviction, amen, do whatever the Holy Spirit tells you to do. My point is that a lot of times Christians have their estate documents done without ever actually thinking about the application of biblical stewardship principles and without necessarily consulting God to say, what did you give us the access for? What would you have us do with it? So the beginning of the estate planning process for all of God's people should be the first question, how much to the kids and how much to the kingdom, how much to the kingdom and how much to the kids? Start there and start praying through the process. And as I pointed out a few minutes ago, if my generation of Christians didn't even tithe on our estates, if my generation of committed Christians left 2% of our estates to God's work, the Great Commission would be funded. If not in our lifetime, then as we pass and pass God's wealth down to the next generation. So, but I've just tried to urge folks to apply the same biblical wisdom, the same biblical stewardship principles that they've been practicing all along for years and years. Just apply those same principles to the wealth transfer process instead of just indiscriminately dividing an entire estate between the kids equally without having consulted the owner to make sure that's what he wanted us to do. 
Jim, can you tell us a little bit more about how the Great Commission became such a focus in your research and some of these pretty compelling conclusions that you've drawn about the opportunity that people right now have to participate in the funding, the partnership, all the different ways that we as individuals and as the church can get involved in the work that is currently happening. How did that happen for you? It was a progression. It happened fairly quickly, but it was a progression. It started with that discipline of being in God's word every day, because it's very difficult to spend time with the Lord every day and to be consuming God's word every day and not have that automatically cultivate a missional heart, God's missional heart inside the believer. So for me, my conviction in leading in my own personal ministry and my heart for evangelism and discipleship grew naturally out of the work the Spirit was doing in me as I studied God's Word every day. The passion increase is Laurie and I started supporting some of these ministries that are, most of whom have been on your guys' podcast already, but the ones that are really on the front lines of reaching the remaining unreached, unengaged people group and doing Bible translation is we started not just supporting these organizations, but really paying attention to the information that they were sharing with donors, going to the events and learning about what was happening on the front line. Our passion increased pretty dramatically because we started to get direct exposure to how and where God was working in the world. It's interesting. I So many Christians, like we look at what's happening in our own nation and just how things have shifted, certainly during my lifetime, and how there's probably more hostility toward Christianity in the U.S. now than there's been before. Sometimes Christians just look at the U.S. as if the U.S. church is like the totality of the kingdom of God, and it looks like we're losing. I mean, there are times when you look at what's going on in our nation, and you just feel like we're fighting a battle and we're losing it, and you find yourself in despair, kind of looking up into the sky, waiting for Jesus to come back and get us out of it. I'll tell you what, when you start interacting with these ministries that are on the front lines of the gospel exploding across the world and countless people coming to faith in Jesus Christ, it's really hard not to be increasingly passionate about completing the work God's called us to do because and more people are probably coming to faith in Jesus Christ every day now than ever in the history of the world. And sure, I can look at what's happening in the U.S. and say, boy, things are getting really tough. Christians are you know, not treated well, not looked favorably upon. It can start to feel like the church is losing the battle. And what's fascinating to me is that the resources, like for Bible translation to be done for missionaries and church planters to go out and reach the remaining unengaged and unreached people groups, it takes financial resources in order for that work to go forth. I mean, I'm sure there are missionaries. In fact, I know there are missionaries that come back that have given their life to the mission that could come back home and stay home for lack of resources. Funding dried up. They lost some supporters, no longer have enough money to go out into the field. The problem is not that there are not enough workers out there. The problem is the lack of generosity, the lack of financial resources to complete the work that is already being done. So that was the final acceleration for me was when I did the research and realized that 
the church in America, I have no idea why God has chosen to bless America financially in the way he has and the church in America in the way he has, why he's given us the resources in this generation. It's never happened before. We are the first generation of Christians that will not be able to stand before Jesus with this excuse. Well, we wanted to finish the work. We would have finished the work, but we didn't have the money. Because he gave us the money, he gave us way, way more money than we're going to need to finish the work that all Christians agree that he's called us to do. So when I started to realize that the resources are already here and they're already in the American church, and it's just a matter of kind of shifting the perspective to say this is really within reach. I understand from the Bible it is not for me to know the times and the dates the Father has set by his own authority. I'm not predicting when the world's going to end. That's none of my business. If Jesus decides to tarry for another 10,000 years after the gospel is being preached in the last remaining people groups, I don't know how many disciples he wants made before he comes back. But I do know a precondition is coming back is that there are going to be people in every people, nation, tribe, and language that have come to faith in Jesus Christ are in the process of being discipled. That we know. So knowing that and agreeing to that and then knowing that he's already given us, us enough money the organizations had already been raised up. The organizations are collaborating now in a way that has never existed in the history of the church. The only thing that is not there yet is the money to finish the work. He's given us the money, but it hasn't been allocated yet out. It hasn't been distributed out through our generosity. So my passion to see the funding of the work completed in our generation was driven by realizing that God's already given us the money to get the work done. It's so funny hearing how God has shaped your view of that and how he has kind of grown these parallel passions in your life for generosity and stewardship, as well as the Great Commission, because I feel like that's exactly what he has walked us through in this podcast. I mean, the amount that we have learned and grown from these last 60 or however many conversations, just seeing how God is radically moving in the area of generosity and in starting to mobilize wealth and simultaneously bringing together in a collaborative way countless people and organizations across the whole world towards the final tasks that are remaining is just incredible to watch that all happening in real time. And every few years, there's like major updates on the progress on both of those things coming together. And I agree completely with you. I have no idea why he put so many resources into the hands of the American church, but God has his reasons for how he works. And we often don't understand those. And for whatever reason, that's how it has played out. And I'm sure that it's not an accident and that, we have a great calling, you know, on our hearts and on our shoulders. And, you know, a lot of the work being done is not by Americans, indigenous missionaries, people that are reaching their own nations, their own people groups who have never heard of the name of Jesus whatsoever. And a lot of, I think, the wealth here is moving to non-Americans who are really carrying out this final work. And so, it's a privilege to be a part of that. And it's, I feel like we are blessed to, you know, have this medium of this podcast just to see the bigger picture of how God is pulling all that together. 
Yeah, it's funny. When I think back to the beginning of my career as a non-Christian in a secular firm, and one of the things that we would do is we would have these new stock offerings, new companies that are going public. And then you call all your clients and say, you know, next Thursday, this offering's coming out. There's a limited number of shares available. It's like, if you want to get in, you got to get in now. Now I'm a follower of Jesus Christ and understand the wealth is here. And that's the thing that just continually drives me. It's like, I don't want to not have been one of the ones. Lori and I don't want to be sitting mm-hmm. on the sidelines and not having had an opportunity to invest in, for us, a bunch of the ministries that you guys have already had on an interview that are on the front lines of making disciples among every people, nation, tribe, and language. It's almost like, what would we ever do with money in our lifetime that's more exciting than making investment in that? And as I mentioned earlier, it almost makes me laugh at times that, like, if you want to have a really funny discussion, go to a dinner party with six or seven other Christian, committed Christian couples, but preferably from all different denominations, and just lob a question, a theological or a doctrinal question out on the table. You know, like, well, what do you think about predestination? And then just shut up and watch what happens. Or <laughs> what do you think about baptism? You know, infant, believer, dunk, sprinkle, like just and just shut up, step back and watch the argument ensue. Like there's so much stuff that as Christians, we don't agree about, like different biblically based opinions. And sometimes Christians will fight to the death over them in here. The only doctrinal issue you will never hear two passionate followers of Jesus fighting about is the Great Commission. Like everybody's aligned on that one thing. There are no like different positions on it. So it just makes sense to me that if anything was going to unite the church of Jesus Christ in our generation, if there's a doctrinal issue we can get around, it's that missional heart of God and the calling to make disciples of all nations. So it's funny. This feels like a stupid example, but it's one that has been driving me for years now. Because I do believe that we're going to stand before the Lord and give an account for what we did with his money. Lori and I are very strongly convicted, and we are trying to be prepared for that day. Every client I've ever gotten to serve. My heart is to help prepare them to stand before the Lord and give an account for what we did with his money. And we all desire when that day comes to hear the words, well done. That's what we all desire. My fear is the risk for a lot of wealthy Christians in our generation to get Jesus kind of furled brows in. What were you thinking? Like, what were you think? Why did you think? I gave you so much money than you were ever going to need or use in this lifetime. That's what drives me. It's what scares me. But I'll tell you, when generous, wealthy Christians, especially folks that have been giving generously but start to understand making an investment, I mean, most generous Christians understand we're investing in eternity anyway. But those of us who experience, have personally experienced forgiveness of our sins, the love, the grace, and mercy of God, the intimate personal love that he has for us in walking with us, the indwelling Holy Spirit, you desire that desperately for every person in the world who has never had it made available to them. And the fact that, you know, the American church, it's like you said, you know, when a lot of this work now is being done in other places, it's much more effective to have indigenous ministers spreading the gospel than training people up, training Americans in the United States and sending them into a foreign culture. 
but he allowed us to participate directly by giving us the wealth to fund this work that's being done. I just, again, I can't imagine dying with a stockpile of God's money and trying to explain to Jesus that that's what me and Lori thought he wanted us to do with it. Well, there's a lot of incredible things going on in the world, and we're just getting small glimpses, you know, here and there. And it is such an incredibly exciting, and it draws you in and makes you want to participate in every way possible. But in addition to some of these things that we've been talking about, what are you excited about coming on the horizon over the next five years? A number of things. It's interesting. If you go to the Finish Line Pledge website and you look at all of the different folks that you guys have interviewed over the years, it really is these ministries that are on the very front lines and they're all working together, which is overwhelming to me to see that degree of collaboration because the desire to finish the work and to do what God called us to do is much more important than any one of us individually, any one of us givers individually or any of the ministries individually. So I probably am most encouraged and excited about the collaboration of different ministries coming together, each doing the part God raised them up to do, but to reach the remaining people groups. And individual ministry-wise, which I'm not sure if it's okay to talk about a specific ministry or not, but it is something that Laurie and I have gotten really excited about. The Jesus film, you had Josh Newell on, I think it was last year, and he talked a little bit about how the Jesus film has really been on the front line, kind of the tip of the spear for going into these areas that have never been exposed to the gospel at all. So oftentimes the strategy is to dub the Jesus film into the heart language of the new people group and then to introduce Jesus and introduce the gospel to this brand new people group by showing the Jesus film. And then the church planting and missionary teams come in behind and the Bible translation comes in. And I'm incredibly excited that the Jesus film at this point is launched in, I think, 1979. I always remember that because that's the year Ron Blue started our firm. The Jesus film has been viewed at this point 8 billion times in 2,000 different languages. And to date, over 630 million people in the world have indicated that they've repented of their sin and trusted in Jesus Christ, the Savior and Lord. I mean, the numbers are just tremendous. When you think of that work being on the front line, the Jesus film is in the process of developing an animated version of the Jesus film, an animated version of the gospel, because the younger generations now, that's basically what they're accustomed to. It's a way of reaching now multiple generations, not only in our country, but across the world. It's just one more tip of the spear evangelistic tool that we're really excited about because it's entirely possible. I often feel like it's probable that when the last handful of unengaged, unreached people groups hear the gospel for the first time, there's a very good chance that it will be through a viewing of the Jesus film because that tends to be the first way in. So that's a great commission-oriented ministry that I'm excited about, especially because Jesus film is collaborating with, I think, 1,800 different ministries around the world, talking about the collaboration again. But all of these ministries working together in the name of Jesus Christ to get the gospel out to the remaining unengaged people groups is the development that I'm by far the most excited about. 
Yeah, absolutely. And anybody who's interested, we interviewed Josh Newell, who is the executive director of Jesus Film, back on episode 45. So you can go and check that out if you want to learn more about what they're doing. As we get to the end of the episode here, Jim, I did want to leave us some time for our manager's minute. We like to end every episode with one practical action for our listeners to step into their role as stewards and manage God's wealth wisely. So do you have any suggestions for our listeners today? I do. I think if we've been talking about these great commission-oriented ministries, I know for Lori and I, it was as we started to get exposure to what God is doing around the world and how rapidly the gospel movement is progressing around the world. For us, that came through us financially supporting these great commission-oriented ministries and then reading all the stuff that they sent us about the work God was doing through them, going to the donor events when you had an opportunity to actually hear from people that were on the front lines. So, I mean, I just off the top of my head, and you, as you mentioned, interviewing Josh Newell at Jesus Film, you had Dr. John Chestnut from Wycliffe Bible Translators. I think you had Doug Cobb from The Finishing Fund. Faith Comes by Hearing, I think, has been mentioned several times now. But just if listeners aren't sure who those kind of front of the Finishing the Great Commission, who some of those ministries are, they really only need to come to the Finish Line Pledge website and look at the interviews that have been done. Because it looks to me like the two of you have already talked to most of them. And those interviews are just fantastic. So, but my encouragement is in the giving that we do, think beyond, I mean, we all give faithfully to our church, Lord willing, we all probably have a handful of missionaries that we have relationships with and some other folks that we support, but look at your giving portfolio, if you will. And if there are not any ministries in there, or perhaps even several ministries in there, that are involved directly in reaching the remaining unreached, unengaged people groups around the world. Add those to your giving portfolio because it is through that financial support and the information that you'll be getting back from these ministries, keeping you informed as to how God's working around the world in and through them. It really is transformational. It really writes our perspective about the glory of God and the power of the gospel. And it also really stimulates further the desire to be more generous, to be giving to the ministries that are out there doing this work that, again, we all agree that God's called us to. Well, thanks so much for joining us, Jim. This has been a fantastic conversation. So grateful for all that God has done in your life, for all that he's brought you through to the point that you're at today. And we're just grateful that you could share your story with us. Helen, Cody, it's great to be with you guys. I appreciate it very much. And may God continue to bless the work you all are doing in the generosity movement. Amen to that. Hey, thanks so much for listening to the show, guys. If you have questions about setting a financial finish line, the finish line movement, or anything else you heard on the show today, we would love to hear from you. And now I have a quick question for you. Do you know anyone who is living a life filled with generosity, purpose, and mission? If so, we would love to talk to them. They don't need to have a financial finish line, and they don't need to have all the answers. They just need a heart to steward God's wealth to the best of their ability. If you know someone like that, we would be honored if you would connect us. You can reach us on Instagram at finishlinepledge, through our website at finishlinepledge.com, or by email at hello at finishlinepledge.com. Finally, if you want to find any references or links from today's show, you can always find them in our show notes at finishlinepledge.com slash episode 61. That's all we have for today. We'll see you next time. <laughs>